0: Well, good morning, everyone. Packed house, I love it. And by packed, I mean safely six feet apart from everybody. 30% capacity, just to make that clear for everybody out there. Um, This is fantastic. So looking forward to this day to be able to not preach to a camera and to preach to all of you lovely, beautiful people. Um, We're picking up in Matthew chapter 24 today as we continue our close look at the final week of Jesus's life. And this is a good day for you to have Matthew 24 open in front of you at home or here, because we are covering the entire chapter in one 35-minute sermon. Um, And Matthew, as you know, in this final week of Jesus' life, as he goes towards the cross, he set his face towards Jerusalem, he is determined to go to the cross, and we've seen in the last two chapters, in the last two verses, or sermons especially, that the tone of Jesus' teaching has changed a little bit, and we have to wrestle with what we do with that tone. He begins by basically taking kind of all comers out on the streets of Jerusalem, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the lawyers, the scribes. They come at him, and he starts to answer them very directly and put them in their place in his teaching, something that he sort of avoided doing for the most part before. And then last week we saw in Matthew 23, he turns the tables and sort of goes on the offensive, and we went through the seven woes of the Pharisees and how he rebukes the Pharisees and their false religion. And then this week, we're looking in Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus a couple of questions. One, a startling statement that he made about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and the second question, a question about the sign of the ends of the age. And Jesus, again, his tone is very hard for us to hear, because he's talking about the church age to come, what the disciples are going to have to live through, what his followers are going to have to face in terms of persecution and tribulation, and then the coming, the second coming of the Messiah at the end of the age. And these are good questions. They're they're questions that we want to know the answer to, and Jesus is going to answer them, and we're going to learn some things in those answers. But in the end, just like last week after the seven woes in the end Jesus gives an answer to the disciples and to us which isn't necessarily the question they asked or the answer they were asking for but it's what they needed to know and so we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at Jesus's answers to the disciples which are the signs of the end times and the signs of this church age but then we're going to land on the hope Of the instruction that Jesus gives his disciples at the end. Because of what he explains in terms of this church age and the signs of the end times, Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. That's the application that we're going to land on. Because once again, Jesus is not speaking the way that he is in these final days in order to condemn his disciples or to condemn us. He's speaking this way in order to save us. So what is the context, then, of Matthew chapter 24? He's just finished issuing the seven woes to the Pharisees that we considered, the blind hypocrites. We don't want to be like them. We learned that. And now, literally, as he's leaving that conversation, as he is walking away from the temple, through the streets, out to the Mount of Olives, the disciples make an observation as they're walking through the streets, which gives us the context. Matthew 24 says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to, a, came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all of these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age?" And so as they're leaving the city, the disciples are impressed with the temple and with the city of Jerusalem itself. You have to understand, Jerusalem was a city that was literally the jewel of the Middle East. It was at the peak, almost the peak, the peak of its empire after Solomon. It had the second temple, it was a metropolis, it was a bustling city. And the disciples are in, impressed by the temple and all of these things because to them that was the kingdom. That was their picture of the kingdom of God, the temple and the holy city. And that's the kingdom that they were putting their trust in. But yet Jesus says to them that those city buildings are going to be torn down to the very foundations. And the disciples are shocked when he says this. And so they ask, when is this going to happen? What are you talking about, Jesus? And what is the sign of your coming, the end of the age? And I find that question very interesting, because up until this point, I don't think the disciples were getting... That Jesus was going to the cross and leaving in order to come back a second time. They were in denial of that. But here it seems like the disciples have finally started to understand Jesus' teaching that he is going to come again after he goes to the cross. And the next 36 verses of Matthew 24 are essentially Jesus answering those questions about the signs of the ends of the age and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and him coming again and his second coming. And so now are you ready... Are you ready for the whirlwind tour of the signs of the ends of the age? They are fascinating answers, and we are going to consider them in part. But remember, we're considering them only in part on our way to the destination of the conclusion that Jesus leaves with his disciples, of how he wants them to act because of what he's going to tell them about the ends of the age. And before I begin this overview of the signs of the end times and the end of the age, we need to start with a short history lesson to sum up some of the things that took place after Jesus went to the cross, was resurrected, and returned to heaven. These history points are important because you will hear echoes of these points in history as we unpack what Jesus is explaining is the future to his disciples. So here's some history. Jerusalem and Israel is under occupation by Rome. Rome continues to conquer the kingdoms that lay beyond Israel, including Egypt and others. We know that from history from Josephus and other historians. The disciples and other missionaries like Paul and Barnabas and Apollos are going to travel far and wide spreading the gospel, as we learn later in Acts. There was also a famine in Jerusalem in that time period. There was persecution of the disciples and of the church, with many of them put to death, and we learn of that in Acts as well. Then in 70 A.D., almost 40 years later after Jesus, Rome returns and destroys the temple and the city of Jerusalem because of historical reasons and insult and offense and rebellion by the Jews, and we don't need to know why, but Rome will return in 70 A.D. and destroy the temple and the city of Jerusalem, and we know that from Josephus and Pliny and other historians. False prophets rise up in the church and need to be rebuked and warned against, and we see that later on in the writings of Peter and Jude and John as they guard the church against false prophets and false Christs. The acceptance of the gospel will rise and fall over the years and decades, even centuries, as the gospel goes farther and farther, ultimately, Jesus says, to the ends of the earth and every kingdom. And what we know historically is that Jesus has not yet returned for a second time. Okay, so that's all just history. That is, that's what's happened after this that Jesus talks. So that's the history lesson. Now, as we consider these verses, I also want you to understand this. Okay, because when we get into this end time stuff, it gets a little crazy. There are at least three basic ways to structure and interpret this chapter. There's probably at least 30 variations on those three basics. But for simplicity, let's just say that there's three basic ways of interpreting this chapter and the end times that it points to. And also, I want you to understand this. Many Christians that are good, wise, thoughtful, faithful Christians have held any of those three or thirty different interpretations at any one time. And if they're like me, have held all three of them at various points in their Christian life. Maybe even this week while I was studying this, I held all three of these points in my mind simultaneously at the same time. And that's okay. And you should also know that Wendy and I don't fully agree on how these verses are to be interpreted. And so it's possible to have different opinions about these verses and still love one another as Christians. My marriage depends on that reality. So if you were to study these different interpretations in depth, you would discover that they all have strengths and they all have weaknesses. There is no one single interpretation that fits this text or other end times text perfectly. One interpretation attempts to make almost the entirety of what we are going to read about the second coming. Jesus is describing a future seven-year tribulation and his physical return to earth, and that interpretation has some really strong points. It deals with the time references very well. However, it requires that there be a third temple to be built and then destroyed again, and it also seems out of context with the disciples' very straightforward question about these buildings and this temple that they're asking Jesus about. And also, that text was not interpreted that way by really any of the early church. Not almost until the 17th century was that view of the text. And so that is a weakness of it, although it has many strengths. Another interpretation takes each paragraph on its own and applies an interpretation to each individual paragraph. And that's really helpful because then every paragraph makes internal sense. But the problem is it doesn't handle the time references well, like in those days and immediately after. And so it becomes very disjointed if you do it that way. A third interpretation splits the text into two time periods. The fall of the temple in 70 AD, which is most of what Jesus is describing. And then a description of the inauguration of his kingdom and the end times that is coming. However, that interpretation struggles to reconcile the second coming imagery that's there for a time period that's in the first century. And so it doesn't deal with the time references very well either, and it doesn't deal with some of the imagery very well, and it has to kind of force some imagery in there that isn't obvious to most early first-century Christians. So all of that to say that I admit right away that there's no perfect interpretation, but I'm going to try anyway. And then we will conclude where Jesus does on the application to our lives. Okay, so remember the history Remember that there are multiple ways of interpreting this, and don't be too concerned about that, because Jesus is talking about, as he always is, very mysterious things. So this is my personal overview of the text, okay? This is me giving you how I read it and how it's helpful for me to read it. And in this text, it's helpful for me to read verses 4 to 14 as Jesus giving a summary answer. In other words, he's giving a very basic summary answer, which he is then going to go back and fill in two pieces of detail on. And so when you read verses 4 to 14, this is the whole answer before Jesus goes back and gives more detail. It says, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. In Luke, that verse says this is just the beginning. So when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, that's not actually a sign of the end. That's the sign of the beginning. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away, It says, oh sorry, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Okay, so when I read that, I see Jesus saying, here is the whole sweep of everything, starting with the fall of the temple, you disciples in the church age, you know, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, all of that stuff, the false prophets, the gospel going forth to the ends of the world, the the acceptance of the gospel rising and falling, and the love of people growing cold, that's the overview. And then the end comes after the gospel finally goes to all nations. That's a big time span. And then in verses 15 to 22, as you read on, I believe Jesus now goes back and says, here's some detail. Notice how verse 15 starts. He says, so when, so now that I've told you all this, so when you, disciples, see the abomination of desolation spoken of by a prophet, Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. In other words, this is going to be like it was a couple hundred years ago, when Another person came and, just, and, and stood in the temple and made pagan sacrifices there. When you see that happen again, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back. And he goes on, alas for women who are pregnant, pray that it not be in winter. Then there's going to be great tribulation such as never been seen from the beginning of the world until now and will never be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, they will be cut short. So now I think what's happening here is Jesus is going back and he's saying, okay, so I've given you the overview. Now, disciples, in your lifetime, you're going to see this happen. And when you see the abomination of desolation stand in the temple which you're going to see in 70 A.D. You're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. You're going to see Jerusalem on fire. You're going to see the temple destroyed. He's going back to say, remember when I told you that no stone would be left standing on another? This is what you are going to see, disciples. During the short term, this is a key thing to watch out for that's gonna begin all of this stuff. And the incredible thing is here, don't forget, this happened. Jesus is talking in 33 AD. Matthew's written probably somewhere 45 to 48 AD. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple was in 70 AD. And it happened exactly like Jesus said it would. Precisely. We have the historian Josephus who tried to negotiate a peace between the Jewish people and Rome at the time, and after his intermediation failed, he was an eyewitness to the account. It says, Titus Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were the greatest eminence. So he picked a few towers to leave standing so that they could show what a great city it was that Rome destroyed. It was so thoroughly laid even to the ground by those that dug it up to the very foundations that there was nothing left to make those that came thither believe that it, the city Jerusalem, had ever been inhabited. That's how utter the destruction was. The people later on in history came to Jerusalem and it's like, there was a city here? Do you imagine a city like Toronto, so devastated that you couldn't even believe a city existed there anymore? That's what happened to Jerusalem. And then he, he describes the situation here in Jerusalem in terms of the tribulation and the terror that took place. He estimated in his writings that over one million Jews were slain in that siege. He says, as the legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impetuosity Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot and smoking ruins of the colonnades and died as miserably as the defeated. As they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands and urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The partisans were no longer in a position to help everywhere with slaughter and flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Round the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered to the bottom. That's Josephus writing about what happened in 70 AD. So, every stone was torn down, every wall destroyed, except a few that Caesar wanted to brag about. Over a million Jews were killed in the city, utter chaos and destruction and mayhem. That's what Jesus is talking about, is the sign of the beginning of the tribulation that's to come on the church age. Then, in verses 23 to 31, we get detail of that age to come detail of the false prophets rising, detail of the love of many growing cold, detail of how the gospel is going to go out to the ends of the earth, because all of that has to happen too. So then he says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise. You see, he's going back and describing that time period again. And he says, they will perform great signs and wonders to lead you astray, if possible, even the elect. And see, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, here he is in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's here in the inner rooms, don't believe it. Why does Jesus say this? Why does he say, if people are saying, Christ has come here, Christ has come there, you know, come and see Christ is coming, why does he say not believe it? He says, don't believe it, because as you're going to see, he says, because when I come, there won't be any question when I come. It's not going to be secret. When I come, the world is going to know. That's why he says, don't believe it if you hear people talk that way about my coming. Because He says, for as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be instant. It's going to be obvious. Everybody's going to know it. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, See, so Jesus says, don't believe it if people are like, oh yeah, Jesus is back, you should come see him over here. You know, Jesus is coming. You say, no, I'm coming like lightning, and when I come, everybody's going to know. There will be no mistaking my arrival at the end of those days. And admittedly, the time references get harder, because Jesus is talking here about an era of false prophets rising and preaching. Is that years? Is that decades? How long does it take for them to rise? He talks about after those days, the days of the false prophets, the days of false anticipation, the days of love of some growing cold and some enduring. It's some long time frame. Kingdoms have to rise and fall during this time frame. And then suddenly, at the end of those days of of the gospel going forth to the end of the world, at the same time as the love of others are growing cold and some are enduring and some aren't, at the end of all of that, there is the sudden arrival of Jesus, the last day, instantly— which fits with almost all descriptions of Jesus' coming elsewhere in Scripture, and it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be over quickly, and it's going to be done. And then in verses—so that's, that's how I unpack the chapter and what Jesus is describing to his disciples. And then in verses 32 to 41, you get a, a, se- a segment here where Jesus is just re-emphasizing and describing the uncertainty of these time references and how hard it is to know when exactly this is going to happen. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you'll see these things and you'll think that it's coming and and there will be signs of it. And when you see those things, know that he's near at the very gates. Truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And that's a difficult time reference I'm not going to get into. But it's another one of those difficult time references that everybody has to reconcile. The important thing is here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus says it again, it's going to be this long indefinite time period. You're going to see some signs, but you won't know exactly when. I don't even know when. But then he doubles down again and he reemphasizes, it's going to be just like Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see, he says it again. It's going to be sudden, it's going to be instant, and I am going to sweep away those who are not part of my kingdom. And he explains that by saying, Then two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. So Jesus has stopped describing future history now here. He's just emphasizing that there will be signs, but they are still uncertain. No one knows when he will come, but he repeats that it will be quick and unexpected and that he will come in judgment. One will be there just working at the mill, grinding their flour, and then they will be taken, just as those in the days of Noah were taken by the flood. That's how I read Jesus' answers to his disciples. And they feel right to me. The reason that the reading in that way, in that light, feels right to me is because reading it that way lays the correct foundation for Jesus' own application. If we read them in that light, then those answers set up the conclusion at the end of the chapter that Jesus leaves his disciples with and leaves us with. And this is where Wendy and I do agree on the conclusion. We can all agree on the application that Jesus gives us. Okay, so that was the whirlwind tour of Jesus' answers of the signs of the end times. But the important part of that description of what Jesus answers his disciples is the conclusion that he leaves them with, and we will conclude as he does. Because everybody comes to these end times discussions and these end times talks, and they say, what's the bottom line, though? There's so much discussion and argument and controversy about this. What is the bottom line in terms of the end times? Well, Jesus knows that's what we need, and so that's what he concludes with. Jesus has a bottom-line answer for the disciples, which is, this is what you do about it. This is what you do about my answers. There's one giant overarching theme from verse 1 all the way down to verse 41, and the overarching theme is this, the world is going to pass away. Jesus says, you country boys from Galilee are all amazed by the big temple and the big city of Jerusalem. Let me tell you, this is nothing. This is going to pass away. You think this is forever? Just because it stood here for a few hundred years? No, this is going. You think this great city, this great civilization is something? No, this will be laid to its foundation. The overarching theme here is the world is passing away. There is a whirlwind coming. And it's not just coming for Israel, Jesus unpacks in the rest of his answer. It's not just about this city getting laid low. The whole world is going to get consumed in a whirlwind. It's not just for Israel, but it's for all creation. It's for the four corners of the earth. When will you see me come again? Not until after the church gets persecuted, not until after the love of many towards the gospel grows cold, not until after things get a lot worse, like entire kingdoms disappearing. That's how bad it's going to get. Then stars will start to fall, and then the whole heavens will be shaken, and then I'll come. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but even as all these things are shaken, will be consumed, he concludes his summary by saying, but my words won't pass away. Don't put your hope in the temple. Don't put your hope in Israel. Don't put your hope in your ethnicity. Don't put your hope in your religion. Don't put your hope in anything out here. It's my words that you put your hope in. Hebrews 12, 26 to 27, the writer of Hebrews is looking forward to this time as well, and he says at that time, he's talking about when God was speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he says at that time, God's voice shook the earth but now he has promised, yet one, once more I will, in the day of the Lord, shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Remember what Jesus said? The heavens are going to shake and the stars are going to fall. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. I'm going to shake again, but not just the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. See, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the exact same thing. He's saying God's going to speak, and he's going to shake things again, but it's not just going to be an earthquake on Mount Sinai. It's not just going to be the leveling of Jerusalem in the temple. God is going to speak, and all of created, every created thing is going to shake until only things that are not shaken remain. Heaven and the Word of God. We may not know the dates or the times or even the era that these things will take place. We don't know the time of the Lord's coming, but we know what will get us through those times and get us out of them. It is the Word of God. The Word of God is not shaken. The Word of God does the shaking. And so Jesus concludes with practical instruction for his disciples. And the conclusion that Jesus finishes with in in verses 42 to 51 are this. This is what we take away. The Word of God doesn't shake, and so what you need to do is you need to be watchful, be faithful, and be prepared. He says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if there was a master of the house had known on what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them from their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. You see, he says, be watchful. Stay awake. You don't know when the Lord is coming. Imagine you had a son or a daughter who is returning, say, from a tour of duty in Afghanistan, or maybe a parent who's coming back from Afghanistan, or some tour of duty where they've been away for months, maybe a year. And all you know from the army, from the military, is that they're coming back sometime this week or maybe sometime this month. How would you behave if you knew they were returning sometime that week or that month? I mean, yeah, you'd still go shopping, you'd still go to work, you still got to do that, but you wouldn't go very far. You wouldn't be making any plans for your life to be away, because when your son or your daughter returns from Afghanistan, you want to be there. You want to be ready. Now, that's a positive way of saying it, right? That's a good thing to look forward to. It's interesting. Jesus puts it in the negative. He says, I'm like a thief coming in the night. Now, why would Jesus use a metaphor where he's the negative, where he's a thief? Because he wants his disciples to understand why they need to be watchful. When I come, if you're not ready, you will suffer loss. If you're not ready when I come and you're not watchful, you will be plundered like a thief in the night. This is a warning to the disciples to be watchful, because your joy and your hope and your salvation will be robbed if you're not alert for my coming. So be watchful. And then he says, be faithful. You have to be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. So who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Be watchful. And then Jesus says, be faithful. If you want to be watchful, if you want to be ready for Jesus, then be faithful in your servant service. He's given us stewardship over the now-but-not-yet kingdom here on earth. We are his servants. He's given us stewardship over his ministry of reconciliation. So he says, feed my other servants. Manage this household well while I'm away. Jonathan Edwards started at the age of 18 writing resolutions about how he had resolved to live his life in the light of his salvation and in light of heaven and hell. Jonathan Edwards wrote 70 resolutions between December and August when he was 18 years old. Some of them being resolve never to do anything I would be afraid or regret to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve, never to, resolve to inquire every night before bed where I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and where I have denied myself, and also to do so at the end of every week, month, and year. Resolve to act as if I... Th- act as I can think I should if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and already seen the torments of hell. See, Jonathan Edwards said, I got to live with eternity in mind at all times because Jesus is coming, and I don't want to be caught in any day doing something that I wouldn't want to be doing if he were here. How about you or me? Would we live differently if Jesus was coming back tonight or this week? Will he find us faithful and obedient? Are there any relationships that we would want to repair now before he arrived? Are there any selfish actions we would want to confess? Are there any habits that we would want to be broken and behind us before he came? Is there any service we would want to have done for the kingdom before his arrival? Don't delay, Jesus says. Start being the faithful servant now so that you're ready when I come. And then finally, be prepared. He ends the parable this way, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus puts it in the negative again, and he says... If you think that I'm not coming back and you decide you can just go partying with all the drunkards and you can beat my fellow servants and you can act greedily and selfishly and poorly and get away with it, you are going to be filled with regret when I return because I'm going to cast you out and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is anger and regret and sorrow that you've missed his return. So how does this apply to us right now? Are we being watchful? Are we being faithful? Are we being prepared? Jesus gives this great answer, this amazing answer that that covers all of future history for the disciples, but at the end of that incredible answer that he gives them, he says, you know what, you never asked me this, but let me apply it for you. This is what's important. Regardless of all of that stuff, be watchful, be faithful, be prepared. That's the bottom line of the end times. And why is that important? Well, the disciples were asking Jesus about the end times. And since 33 AD, every generation has been asking that same question about the end times. When will Jesus come so I can be ready? For somewhere between 60 and 80 generations that have come and gone, people have asked that question. And every single person in those 80 generations have already met Jesus one way or the other. They didn't need to wait for him to come a second time to meet him. And let me tell you, you probably don't need to worry about meeting Jesus in his second coming. I am certain that almost every one of you will meet him sometime in the next 20 to 60 years, one way or another. Because we have to understand this. Everybody meets Jesus in exactly one generation. Yours. When your generation is over, you will have met Jesus. And so you need to be ready for when your generation is over. Don't worry whether it's another 100 years, or another 200 years, or another 500 years. We're all gonna meet Jesus before then. So our hope and our security at these questions is found in Christ alone, that by trusting in his finished work on the cross, we are able to walk in new ways with transformed hearts that we will be found faithful. It's important to notice the immediacy of the questions the hope of the homeowner that he won't be robbed, the hope of the servant that he will be found faithful. It's not the hope of some past decision or event, but it's their hope in their being awake and watchful and obedient and prepared immediately that day. Our hope is not in a decision that we might have made 20 years ago. Your hope and our hope is that we are faithful in Jesus today. When we are asked if we are alive, we don't pull out our birth certificate and say, well, I got a certificate here that says I was born 50 years ago, so I guess I'm alive. No, if we're asked if we're alive, we take a breath. We put, we put their hand on our pulse and say, see my heartbeat? I'm alive. It's the same thing with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you prepared for Jesus' return? You don't say, well, I made a decision 20 years ago at a youth group event, so I guess I'm ready. No, are you alive in Jesus Christ? Are you faithful and prepared? Today is the question. Are you living and breathing in the Spirit today? Is your heart beating with Jesus today? Are you obedient and faithful today? That's how you know if you are watchful and awake and ready and alive. If Jesus came today and checked you for signs of your spiritual life, would he find them? Because if we're alive in Christ, then as the world passes away, then we will be snatched as a brand from the fire. We will be renewed. Although we are sown perishable, we're raised imperishable. We're not part of the kingdom that is shaken, we're part of the kingdom that remains. That's the hope that Jesus leaves his disciples. And so the message of Jesus in Matthew, the message of Paul in Thessalonians, of Peter in his second letter, of John in Revelation, the message of every end times writing is the same. Live every day watchful and faithful and prepared to meet Jesus because any day you might meet him. Are you ready for that? Have you prepared yourself for that by trusting in Jesus? The writer of Hebrews concludes this way, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What does the writer of Hebrews say when he comes and he's going to shake and everything that's shaken is going to be gone and only what's not not, can't be shaken remains? What's the conclusion of the writer of Hebrews? Exact same as Jesus. Therefore, let's live acceptably. Let's worship acceptably. Let's have reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to communion today, as a church family, we are in awe. That you are God and we're not. That you are uncreated and we are created. That you have all of history in your hands and all of history is accomplishing your purposes. The disciples ask a question they have no idea. (laughs) The can of worms they opened up when they asked Jesus that question. When they said, hey, look at how great the temple is. You just picture Jesus looking at them sideways thinking, oh boy, you don't know. And Father, we know that we live in an era where the love of many does grow cold. We live in an era where our love can grow cold, if it were possible. So let us hear the words of Jesus as we should, as the warning to press in, to make certain of our life in the Spirit, to make certain that we are faithful servants, to ensure that we are prepared for His coming to live every day like it's our last, to live every week as though he is imminent. And Father, we'll be found faithful that way. Father God, we thank you that your word is not shaken, that we can put our hope in your word, and it will never pass away. It will always lead us into truth and into life. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We are going to take communion this morning, and so... Uh, If you're at home and you want to take communion as a family, you're certainly welcome to do that with us. I'm going to pray for both the cup and the bread. And just a reminder that communion is a time when those who have put their faith in Jesus come to partake in the remembrance of his sacrifice and the consummation of a new covenant in his body and in his blood. And if you don't have that relationship with Jesus, it's a good time to start it. And then you can take communion with us and be part of the family. But this is a family meal. And we read of the first one in Luke 22. It says, When the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I won't eat of it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And we celebrate and we remember that our hope is not being able to figure out all the geopolitical realities of the end times. Our hope is that because of Christ Jesus and what he's done, we are part of the kingdom that is not shaken. And that's what we remember today. Let me just pray for the bread and the cup, and then we'll come forward with masks, socially distanced, to pick up your communion and return to your seat with it, and then we'll take communion together. Father God, we thank you for this communion time. Thank you that we can celebrate it. Father, we thank you for the body and the blood of your Son that was shed on the cross, hung on the cross for us to pay the debt of our sin, so that it would never be remembered, not only pay the debt of our sin, but as we were reminded of in 2 Corinthians, but also to give us in the great exchange the righteousness of Jesus Not only are we set free from our sin, we put on the righteousness of Jesus in this exchange. And we give you thanks for that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We'll just have some music.